Welcome back to Range Anxiety. I'm your host, Martin Donnan. We're putting 30 years of automotive experience into 30 minutes. Hopefully, with no 5G interference this time. And we're doing this for your listening pleasure. Now, we always do the feedback section first. And it's been great. US has picked up great. Um, a lot in the middle now. A lot in Virginia and... Some in Germany, of all places, and I'm not sure if they can understand me. I can only barely understand me, but it's great. We're getting some good feedback. This show is going ahead. This podcast is going to keep running for some time yet. I always said it was going to be every couple of weeks or once a month, but you know what? Once a week seems like the sweet spot for this podcast. So... If we cap off where we were last time with Tuna Wars, we were talking about the heady LS1 days and stuff that was going on, really cool things at uh, drive-in motels and drag events. And yeah, great. I didn't really finish that off. And I've actually put it out there to a number of the people that were involved to email me your best stories. Now, they've been really, really slow, especially the Victorians. They have no excuse for ser in lockdown right now because of the COVID-19. Um, so I've decided for this episode, we'll do something a little different. This episode is something that I receive a call about probably six times a week. And that call or this episode is, Martin, should I buy an R35 GDR? Well... That's an interesting interesting question, and it's going to have a lot of interesting answers. I've been involved with them since day dot. I've owned three of them, an 08, uh, an MY10, and an MY15, and I know a little bit about them. In fact, a lot about them. Now, I've made a lot of money out of these cars, and I've actually enjoyed my ownership of them a lot. But some of the stories I'm going to tell, you're going to say, oh, Martin, you, you're just, you know, not a GDR lover. Um, you're being nasty. Well, I am. But the nastiness isn't so much about the cars. More to the point, it's about the people that own them. So let's go to what triggered me to do this. I had the opportunity the other day to drive for an extended distance a beautiful MY19 R35 GDR. Lovely car, perfect, very low kilometres, almost new, tuned by me, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. No, it, it actually tuned up very nicely. Mid-pop on it, really, really good thing. And I had to drive at an extended distance. And yeah, you, you heard me probably take a deep breath then. Um, I thought, at the end of this, my whole plea will be to Nissan to stop making this car right now. Now, it's not because there's anything actually totally wrong with the car. What it is, is that it's a 2007 release car 
that is now going in 2021 and the world has moved on. That's what the world does, by the way, particularly in the automotive industry, is just move on. Now, I was driving this beautiful 2019 GDR and it, in a lot of ways, was abhorrent. It wasn't a great car to drive. Yeah, the gearbox is snatchy and clunky. It lurched, it creaked, it rattled. Did all those bad things. And there you go, in the background, you're saying, Don and hates GDRs, he's a turncoat. He's made a lot of money out of these things. He shouldn't be talking like this. But guess what? It's actually true in 2020. So let's wind the clock right back to early 2009, I think, actually, I think it was November 2008 when I first sat my very ample ass cheeks in one of them. They were at the time, they were quite big. There'll be more of a story on that later. But I had the uh, rare opportunity uh, to drive GDR number 135 off the production line. It was imported as, as a personal import into Australia, uh, sorry, not a personal import, it was a complied import from a joint in Sydney, I even forget who they, were, who they are now, it was that long ago, and a guy, uh, I know, a guy called Kia Wilson bought this car, and he was um, kind enough to let me drive it, I was working with him at the time, and I remember taking uh, an LS1 mate of mine who had a 10 second car, he did a 10 in his manual LS1, I took him for a drive through the hills because Kia said, take it, take it for the weekend. I took him for a drive through the hills and I took him on a, a really nice, tight, twisty track. And um, I had those three magic switches in R, R, R. And we tried to drive, the, well, I tried to drive this thing fast, obviously without crashing it because there was no replacing it at the time. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, I thought, this car... It reacts faster than my mind does. This thing is so fast. It's so brutal. It's so quick and it's so clever. It it was just the most amazing car. And I think my mate, uh, Matt Twigden, who was in the passenger seat next to me at the time, he would probably agree with that. It, it was an amazing time. And, you know, it was so cool to be seen in it. People were hanging out windows, trying to film you with their, like, iPhone Mark 1 or whatever existed back then in 2009. And it was, I dare I say it, I'm going to use a Tesla term, it was super cool. And what a great thing. But there was no support for that car in Australia. So it made us do a lot of head scratching, a lot of thinking. Oh, what happens? How do we service the gearbox? We've heard these gearboxes are, are junk. We've heard the engines are junk. And a lot of that, well, the gearbox junk thing, well, you know, there's, there's a bit of truth there with, with the 2008 JDM, that's for sure. But there was, a, you know, a lot of that whole junk thing portrayed or specialist thing portrayed by the general media at the time. I'm not going to mention names at the moment uh, because, you know, I can't afford a um, lawsuit from Top Gear. But we were told, and, and the general thing was, that there was some rumour that Nissan wanted the bores inspected in these cars 
at 80,000 kilometres. Now, 80,000 kilometres isn't a lot of kilometres for any new car. But it was like, these things have a special plasma-infused bore lining. The engines are going to be dead in 80,000 Ks, and the rest of the car will be perfect, but you need to rebuild the engine every 80,000. 80, well, no, that's not how it worked. Basically, how it worked in reality was that um, you had to rebuild the gearbox every, like, 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000, depending on how hard you drive, and the engine essentially lasts forever. People are going, how could they do that? That special spray-on technology that they had in the aluminium block, it wasn't an iron block, they didn't have iron liners, it had spray-on iron. Well, guess what, boys and girls? Porsche and heaps of motorbike manufacturers have been doing this for 20 years already. They called it Nicosil, you know, they called it other names. This technology had been around forever. And this, and like the Japanese do, they did it pretty darn well. Now, at the start of this whole R35 TDR thing, the guy, he's quite famous now for all the wrong reasons, but Carlos Gon, who, who was Renault, French-Brazilian guy, he he sort of saved this from bankruptcy and uh, helped with this car. And so, you know, it had a lot of sort of things in it that weren't considered total JDM. And, and maybe that's why Japanese tuners, Japanese tuning companies, didn't really embrace the R35 as much as the Americans did. This was the first GTR ever to go to the United States. And friends of mine, they became friends because we shared technology, just went mental, modified these things, made them go fast to the point where America totally eclipsed Japan. You know, and I, I, I'm not going to talk them down. They did an incredible job. So fast forward to today. And today is, you know, the GDR is a car, the R35 GDR car whose time has long passed. It's a beautiful car and I love the car. Like I said, I've owned three of them. The last one was my wife's car, a beautiful MY10. It had done 165,000 kilometers when I uh, purchased it, but they were up the freeway, down the freeway, up the freeway, down the freeway. It was doing like, uh, you know, like 2,000 a week in six gear, just trolling along, doing its thing. The guy took it back to Nissan, who we bought it from here, and uh, they said, we don't want to touch it. Probably needs an engine rebuild. It's done two lots of 80,000 Ks. Haven't you ever watched Top Gear? Well, I was considered, and my work partner, Gareth, um, who's a bit of a GDR expert. He knows how to pull them apart, like in, in, you know, lickety split. He's fast, he's good, and he's thorough. He said to me, Martin, you are the luckiest GDR owner that's ever lived. You bought a second-hand car with about a million Ks on it, um, and you owned it for three years, or so your wife drove it around, who didn't know anything about GDRs. She just thought, wow, this thing's a very, very cool Datsun. Um and 
nothing ever went wrong with it. But you know why? You know why nothing ever went wrong with it? Because I've been involved in enough of them and seen enough disasters and enough good news stories to be able to tell you how to make these cars actually work the way you want them to work. The first thing you got to do, if you are interested in buying a GDR and you're interested in buying a GDR in 2020 or 21, whenever you're listening to this, is don't believe a single thing you read on the internet. Yes, the gearboxes do have problems in these cars. They do. And a lot of it was just due to not actual poor mechanical design, but just stupid electric sensors, just shit that shouldn't mess up, messes up for no apparent reason. But to get at it, you got to pull the thing out of the car and dig the thing apart to do it. You know, because they go into fault so often, there's so many urban legends. Oh, you must relearn your clutch position the whole time. You must look at the pressures that you're running in the gearbox the whole time. No, some of the parts in them are just shit. And you've got to take that on board when you're a potential owner or an owner and just get on with it. More to the point is that the parts you replace them with a lot of the time are just shit too. So like any modified car, you know, you replace a factory sensor with an aftermarket sensor. What makes you think the aftermarket sensor, like a pressure sensor in a GDR transmission, is going to be any better? It may work for a while. You might get two years out of it. But because you've upgraded it, doesn't mean you're going to have a lifetime supply of happiness out of this car. In fact, it probably means it's more prone to failure than it was. So that's pretty cool. Um, you just got to realise the sweet spot with an R35 GDR, and again, this comes from working on hundreds of them and owning many of them, is a mid-pipe and a tune. You do a mid-pipe and a tune to pretty much any GDR, it's going to be a good thing. You start pushing further, start getting ready for failures. You push any factory car outside of its envelope and you're going to start, you know, oh, what do we call it, end of the dragon. You're going to summon the genie and stuff's going to go wrong. And guess what? There's nothing really in these cars that's super cheap to fix. Forget about the fact, oh, it's, a, it's only an auto. I've got a cousin that fixes autos. I can fix it. No, it's a manual transmission with dual clutches. There are no guarantees. There are no warranties. Respect the car, drive it properly, and it will be okay. So this leaves us at a bit of a, a crosshairs. Where... Is an R35 GDR really a good car? Well, not to drive on the road. They're absolutely shocking things in a daily commute. In fact, back in the day in 2009, when they first came to Australia, you had to sign a document from Nissan, or read the document. You know, I never bought a brand new one from them, and why would you? Um, saying this car's going to rattle and creak and clunk in the transmission. Don't come back looking for warranty on it. There's plenty of people did. Plenty of people came out of, you know, Mazdas and Porsches and things that were barely refined 
and these cars were just brutal things to drive as a daily driver, like brutally horrible things. What would they do? They would tram line. You can drive down the road, even in a brand new one, let go of the steering wheel and it will just steer you off into the curb as it sees a camber change or a rut in the road. Really, really brutal thing. In fact, they make abs and they're thirsty. They make absolutely no sense at all as a daily driver. If this is going to be your only car, there are much better options out there. However, where the R35 GDR does make sense is if you want to go fast. Yes, they're a supercar on a budget. Yes, you know, when you were paying 160000 for one in 2009, there were cars that cost 300000 400000 that were much slower around a racetrack. I can tell you this because I went and I raced them in one of those cars back then. They're a great car. However, all of this came at a cost. The only time they made sense was above about, I think my cutoff is about 120 kilometres an hour. You get an R35 GDR above about 120 kilometres an hour, the whole thing starts to have some synergy to it, it has some feng shui, it all starts to work. You can't hear the clunks and rattles over the exhaust note, all of the tram lining goes away, you point it into a corner and it just goes in and it feels the trick that Nissan and their engineers in Japan did with this car. The trick was they made it actually feel a lot lighter than it really was. You know, people are going, oh my God, this thing's 680 kilograms at the time. Well, a Tesla Model 3 is that now and a lot shorter and a lot smaller. The GDR was actually quite light for what it was has a double skin floor pan, has some crazy strength modifications to the body. And that's what makes them so good as the basis for a proper drag or race car. In target events here, and some of my US friends listening might not understand what they are, but um, extended rally road course events, GDRs in the right hands, driven by the likes of one, you know, Australia's like gun tarmac rally driver, one Stephen Glennie or Steve Glennie. They were unbeatable. They were actually unbeatable. Good mate of mine, Matt Sims, he won Target Tasmania, probably the hardest tarmac rally in the world. In fact, his dad, Dennis, and uh, Jamie actually won Target Tasmania. But these cars were really, really good in the right hands when set up properly and raced properly. They were fantastic things and they made sense at speed don't try and drive one every day unless you're a masochist and because the world's moved on a bit in that, in that next 12 13 14 years or whatever it is now you can get a mclaren that's faster or a, a porsche that's faster and you can actually drive it nicely during the day maybe the punishment the nissan gives you is a reward for your love of the breed or the brand. That is true. Now, where does that leave us with one of the most important questions I get asked? Which GDR do I buy to drive for a while and make money? Well, the short answer is none. R35s, the last time I looked, and the data only goes up to about 2017 or 18, they sold nearly 50,000 of these things around the world. They opened up the American market uh, the first time to the GDR, so there are a lot of them 
you know, purchase there, smashed there, raced there, driven there, some stock, most modified, whatever. And because there's so many of them, it's a supply and demand law. It's going to be very, very hard to sit on one of these things and make money. Uh, there are, their secondhand value in Australia is absolutely incredible considering what they are. And unfortunately, because they're so fast, you know, people used to come out in the day and say, you aren't driving this car. This car drives itself. It's got all of these driver aids. Well, guess what? People now look at them and call them that last of the analog supercars. They had some pretty cool traction control. You know, it was all right. It wasn't, it's probably less than an i30N's, Hyundai's traction control now. You know, people said the car drives itself. Well, the amount that have been written off over the years, I can positively guarantee you these cars do not drive themselves. They do not have autopilot. They're no good at that. They are a big handful and a heavy handful. They feel light, but it's like swinging a big piece of lead off the end of a string. You know, once it gets away from you, it's gone. And there's been many rollovers, burn-ups, bust-ups, and prangs in general, or smashes for my American uh, listeners, that are due to people getting carried away with them. The, The traction control will not save you. And more to the point, Every single fast guy I know in one at the track has turned all of that stuff off. They drive these cars with their normal mechanical limited slip rear diff and their standard open wheeler front diff. They drive them just like a normal car and that's how they get the best times out of them. Amazing, huh? But you know, back in the day in 2009 and 2010, We had to cop shit from people driving VW Beetles going, you're only faster than me because you're driving a car that drives itself. No, we're faster than you because you're driving a goddamn VW Beetle. Get with it. Absolute junk. Now, sorry, Adam, if you're listening, you can report me to the King of Denmark. Now, if you're going to buy one and want to make money, I do have some advice for you. Listen to me if you want. I've actually been okay at buying and selling cars and probably keeping more than I should. There is one model, I believe it was late 2008, 2009. If you can get your hands on one, they made very few and I believe very, very, very few if any right-hand drive. And it's called the R35 GDR Spec V. This thing was very cool. It came in that beautiful, like purpley sort of color. I forget what the Nissan paint code is. But it's the same colour that you saw on the R33 GDR. Immense colour. It had a rear seat delete, but it was made out of like quilted, uh, you know, vinyl or leather or something. It looked very cool. And it had, most importantly, IHI VF34 turbochargers on it. They didn't make much of a big deal about that at the time. But they allow these things to make another 50 kilowatts at the wheels over any since uh, maybe other than a Nismo, actually, which I believe shares the same turbo technology 10 years later, uh, GDR. If you can find yourself a genuine spec V, not a V spec, they called it a spec V. They thought we're going to reverse this thing because it's got better um, than the older cars. If you can find yourself a spec V, buy one and sit on it. I'm actively looking for one at the moment and 
that will top off a nice little collection. And, you know, I do have, even after listening to this, you should realize I do have a lot of love for the R35 platform. If you want to make a super fast car, that is still very cool and not put like dumb wheels and stuff on it and, you know, make it into like a Honda CRX from the 90s. Do it with some taste, do it with some class. They're an absolutely brilliant, brilliant car. Will I buy another one for my wife? Probably not. The next one I buy will be for me. So that's a bit of a really basic look into the R35. If you want to know anything more about them, we know all sorts of things about them. Um, if you want to know anything more about them, just drop me an email to my email address, dtech at senet.com.au. I'll come back to you and maybe we'll do a second special on the R35. But for next week, we're going to step it back up and go back into Tuna Wars 2. I have some great stories to tell you. Who would know that an all-wheel drive V8 Holden wagon will go perfectly in reverse at 130 kilometers an hour at least five times? And yes, I'm talking about you, Justice R8. So until then, stay tuned, listen to it next week, and thank you very much for your support and listening to Range Anxiety.